You're listening to the OneOfUs.net Podcast Network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. This Digital Noise episode also is a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. It's Digital Noise! We're back! Oh my god, look who it is! It's John Golson! Sir John Golson! Oh god, you're terrifying me. What is that? I'm happy. Oh, I'm that, happy to be here. That's it's called a smile. You just haven't seen smiles from people in a long time, but that's what they look like. Just a mess of teeth and muscle. That's just a, yeah, that's a smile. When I do that at my cats, they're like, they go running. They're like, hey, you! I'm like, <laughs> What? Like, aren't we, we're primates, right? Like, are humans primates? It's like, I don't know. My, Something. Are we primates? I think we're primates. It's fu- the point is, it's funny that primates have, uh, the show of teeth is like a sign of aggression, and we're supposed to be the closest to primates, but our ours is like a sign of friendliness. Yeah, we can got confused somewhere along the line, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it was like, maybe when we started forming more teams, it became like, yeah, let's go get them. Maybe so. <laughs> So, yes, Chris, I hope you were uh, stunned by my aggressive display. Uh, It means that I'm I'm going to come and take your food and children. I was, and I was like, come get it, man. It's fine. (laughs) I won't do anything to stop you. It's, it's, I'm like 50 now. I'm preparing for death, so it's all good. (laughs) How was your Halloween? Oh, it was pretty good. I, uh, you know, I stayed home. Uh, I watched a lot of movies. Um, Um. I watched, uh, yeah, I watched a lot of movies, What'd just kind of like, um, stuff I hadn't seen. I watched, uh, a 1973 movie called Frightmare and I watched that the I've Netflix seen. original, um, his, his house or his home. Yeah. I know his house. I think that's a brand new one. Watch that one. Terrible poster. Absolutely terrible movie poster, but it has the, the two actors standing in a group of children that aren't even like in the movie or have anything to do with the movie not even the right race of the refugees from the movie it's a very very strange movie poster okay um but a great debut feature okay what else oh gosh i watched legend of the seven golden vampires oh wow i haven't seen that in a I long watched, time yeah it was a lot of fun i watched john carpenter's the fog nice not a favorite i, I hadn't seen it in about 20 years um I rewatched it, it myself not that long ago. I was like, you know, I know a lot of people love this one, but this is always going to be for Carpenter's like most febrile period. I think it is his weakest. Yeah. You know. Um, what else did I see? I saw Return of the Living Dead 3, which I like a lot. I've still never seen the third one. Though. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Everyone it's says, wild. Everyone very, says very that. gory. Yeah. Um, and then I feel like I'm forgetting one. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm forgetting forgetting one okay. and i don't know what i'm forgetting well if it comes to you later you, you can tell me but i, I did right. the same thing as you i sat at home we made like black bean enchiladas and ate a little bit of candy and i watched triggered which hasn't actually come out yet about a bunch of guys who have kids who find us a, a maniac puts bombs on them but every time they kill one another one they get their time so it's kind of a battle royale thing can't talk about you know, it yet because it hadn't been released and i'll get in trouble but i got a press release about it but there's been so many comedy specials called triggered this year that i ignored the press release right. because i thought it was yet another thing called triggered That's and it is fair. i guess yet another thing called triggered but i i didn't i didn't even look at it so i <laughs> that's on me uh i watched the the shutter film that was there they did a because they were running films and having panels all through halloween on their live at shutter thing on their channel and so they had a a secret screening which i wish that i 
I'm like, why didn't everybody do this? This is such a great idea where it was just like the one time and you have to watch it live on the channel. It's really cool. And it was a film called Lucky, uh, starring Bria Grant. And I believe she wrote it as well. And it was a very meta feminist thing about par- horror parable about a girl who keeps having a killer show up to her house every single night over and over again, even if she decidedly kills him his body isn't there the moment she turns her head away and then he just comes back the next day a guy with a mask so it's obviously kind of surreal and there's like a and there's a sequence where she's in a garage and everywhere she looks there's a woman being attacked by her own masked killer you know and i mean you can kind of see where this is going and it was okay it was like one of those like great idea well executed you had no idea how to end it (laughs) i started it i actually uh, I started it and thought it was fine, but ended up, I was, I, I got really extraordinarily tired yesterday and kind of went to bed a little early. I actually went back and looked at the, the list of movies I watched. I didn't watch anything else. That was it. I cut my night short after, uh, after the screening started, I saw about 30 minutes of it and then I, I went on to bed. Fair. And then I saw 1973's Messiah of Evil, which has been on my list forever to watch. Is like, there's said like, oh, if you like surreal horror, it's great. And it was, it was Bach, bottom dollar cheapo that was kind of fucking brilliant i'm like i recommend to anyone who likes carnival of souls or david lynch's weirder stuff i'm like you should totally check this out this is actually kind of cool i'm like why hasn't someone remade this movie i'm really curious very strange i've seen it i think it i want to say a lot of stuff in it predates some of the zombie stuff that romero did but i'm not entirely Mm -hmm. sure anyway well we're seeing i saw a film that what i i didn't hear anybody recommending it but when i found out about it i was like i had to watch this one way or the other which is called the monster club where vincent price is a vampire and he bites john carradine and who's a horror writer and he's like oh i'm not gonna kill you i just i'm i just a sampler why don't you come with me to this disco fucking or this new wave monster club a la the title and where vincent price can sit and tell him stories that relate to monsters they literally made up for this movie as the progeny of like the math of how what happens when different monsters mate with each other and it is weird it is definitely pg like it's for kids like no question and it was very funny (laughs) i don't know if it was good but i liked it i have a big soft spot for that movie yeah um yeah it's it's not an Amicus production, but it's from the Amicus producers. I guess Amicus didn't exist at that point; had yep. already folded or whatever. But it's it's basically the, the talent there, and then the writer Archet Hayes. Um, it's his stories that are adapted. Has UB40 is one of the bands yeah. that play at the club. Uh, our friend Zach Carlson has the painting of the family tree of monsters. No the original shit. prop painting of the family tree of monsters from that movie. It's. Really, a really cool, unique uh, prop to own. Yeah, very unique. It's so goofy, but it's really fun, and it's so Technicolor, and the bands are actually kind of good. Like, they all do do a song about monsters, except for the one band who's, like, the best-known band in there who does a song about being a stripper. Not really. I think that just leads into a visual joke, but... Yeah, they're like, wow, they're actually not bad. Like the main song got stuck in our heads, and my wife was annoyed at me. She's like, "God damn it, now that's going to be stuck in my head all week, and I don't even like it." <laughs> Is it the Monsters Rule song? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I reckon it's like Brian Salisbury and I after we saw New Year's Evil for the first time, and like for just two weeks after, we're like, "I've been through the night, do, 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 do. Yeah. New Year's Evil, like all the time." Yeah. So, well, yeah. that's the reason I bring that up is because that leads us into the actual talking about the Blu-rays we're here to review. Because we're talking about a lot of like, this is might as well be a VH1. I remember the 80s episode, it feels like, right? At least to start with. <laughs> I remember the 80s. Yeah, me too. Some of it's fuzzier than other parts. But I was just a teenager when the movie Gotcha came out and boy did i like it It is 1984 i was 14 years old the idea of people wandering around college campuses with paintball guns playing the game assassin i this was new to me i was like wait that's a thing and they're like yeah people actually do that which they did in fact and uh, this wasn't even the first movie about it. There was another movie called Tag, the assassination game with Linda Hamilton in it. That's about the same thing. But ultimately, that's just kind of a sideline where they call the game Gotcha here to the actual plot, which is a 
globe-spanning adventure with young Anthony Edwards, who was coming off of Revenge of the Nerds the year before. I'm sorry, that was 1984. This was 1985. So he was like, oh, people knew Anthony Edwards was at this point. This was the same director as that film, Jeff Canoe. So it was like, oh, let's see what happens next. And it featured a young-ish Linda Fiorentino, who this was pretty much like the the same year as her film debut, which was Vision Quest. In 1985, she went on from here to be briefly a huge star before she just kind of stopped being a huge star. I don't know what happened there. You remember when she was like Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct level huge for like five minutes and it was and then nothing? You know, I think any of those actresses that did a lot of Weinstein stuff in the 90s that vanished probably have stories as to why they vanished. Yeah. That would be my guess about Fiorentino. I don't know. I haven't seen anything out there. But much like uh, child stars who grew up to be broken adults, it usually has something to do with what was happening to them when they were child stars. I just feel like, you know, I, I assume that she has seen and experienced a lot in her career that might have turned her off of the business as a whole. Uh, I can't, I don't know that that's true. I would just assume that based on the kind of movie she was making and some of the studios she was making them for. Yeah, they put her so, down on the list immediately of like, sexy like woman not afraid to do extensive nudity and sex scenes in a film but is yeah. also a good actress so she was kind of would be in a-list hollywood productions but that were marketed towards the what do you call it uh what was the kim basinger mickey work film oh uh nine and a half weeks yeah it's marketed towards the nine and a half weeks segment of the theater going population if you will yeah but Gotcha is not one of those movies. She. This is Speaking actually, of a great theme song. Uh, that's what I was going to say is because we were talking about how the song got stuck in our heads for those movies. Mm -hmm. This song, gotcha. imme yeah. immediately. Like, I'm like, as it's playing, I'm like, oh, fuck. I forgot about this song, which is just a complete brain worm of a tune. And I actually like it. But then again, I was around when it came out by British singer Teresa Bazaar. Um, it never really went huge beyond this movie, but boy, it was stuck in my head for a good portion of my life. And it's been so long since I saw this, I actually forgot about that. And I still am singing it here weeks later after watching this movie again. But yeah, so he goes, Anthony Edwards, he goes to college. He's like, oh, I want to go. He's in college. He's like, I want to go during break to Paris with this with his roommate, Nick Corey, who was the, I believe the first guy to die in, uh, or the first man to die in nightmare on Elm street, the, the original movie. And there he meets Linda Fiorentino, who's a Czech girl. And she's like, Oh, I like the innocent American boys. And so right off the bat, she's like, all right, virginity, mine, bitch. But like, yeah, sure. I'll hang out with you. And she's like, well, I've got to go to West Berlin. And his friend's like, well, I'm going to Spain. Like our plan was. And you know, I mean, Anthony Edwards, like, I'm going to, keep having sex with Linda Fiorentino and who could blame him. And he starts, you know, really falling forward in West Berlin. It becomes clear, at least to us, oh, she's a spy. There's spy shit going on. And all this leads to him having to escape from there, like not knowing what happened to her, coming back, people chasing him, his gotcha skills coming into play. Like, oh, I'm actually kind of good at running and shooting and what makes for a harmless and fun little movie with the possible exception of the ending shot, which is a little abusive. <laughs> you know, but it's, it is one of the kind of, one of those kind of movies that at the very beginning I thought, I bet this ends with him like shooting somebody and saying, gotcha. And then like freeze frame and like the credits roll. I was, I was like 98% accurate, just barely off of what that final shot of the, of the movie is. This was um, a first time for me. Oh. I knew it from the light gun game for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, I was aware of it from there. Uh, it, and that game was basically just a paintball game. It wasn't uh, tied into the movie in any specific way, other than, I think, the timing of release. So you could go, you could go to the movies and watch uh, Gotcha, and then you could go to uh, the electronics counter at Sears and buy gotcha out of the glass case where they kept all the Nintendo games <laughs> back in the day. Um, I did not enjoy this. Uh, this Aww. is like one of those, um, you know, these two guys are like super horny. They're only motivated by sexual activity. And then one of them gets like 
kind of puppy dog in over his head and goes on this like international adventure that, you know, and you kind of wait for it. Cause you're like, what was the opening 30 minutes of the movie? Like, what was all this stuff about them playing paintball at Harvard? Like, what did that have to do with anything? And then when it comes back, it's like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is ridiculous. This, this concept of like, Oh, okay. Now we see, like we set remember when we set up all the paintball stuff, well, here you go. Here's the payoff for all the paintball stuff. Remember when he was popping out of garbage cans to shoot paintballs at people? Now watch this. Um, this was it was corny. It was cheesy. Um, it was a little too. It was it was just a little too ugly American for me to like really get into it. I kind of didn't like him, um, and I think that has a lot to do with whether or not you get into the movie. And I think especially in 2020, it's a little bit of a hurdle to go, uh, like, I'm sorry, but running around an Ivy league school, shooting people with realistic guns as a sport is very white privilege in the year 2020. Yes. <laughs> There's just no getting around that. First thing all. you think is that dude be dead inside of five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, he's running around campus and he has, you know, what looks like an actual handgun and he's, like shooting people and that's just what people do in the courtyard of, of an Ivy League school. Um and then the fact that his motivation was all sexual. Like it's a it's he goes on this big espionage adventure, but it all goes back to the fact that he he catches a feeling for this girl that he's been laid up in a hotel room with, like, you know, screwing for a couple days. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you not remember what it was, it was uh, like to be 19, John? <laughs> yeah, I, when I was 19, I might've written a movie like this. Mm. Like, I feel like, I feel like I go back and read stuff that I wrote then. And I'm like, I just want to bury it. Like yeah. not, not spend millions of dollars and cast Anthony Edwards and Linda Fiorentino in it. Um, I didn't, you know, it is harmless. I think, I think more or less like, it's just a matter of what kind of mood it catches you in. And I don't have any particular nostalgia for it. Um, I certainly saw, I certainly saw worse from the eighties in this very, in this very stack that we're talking about today. (laughs) Um, I'll, I will remember it and I can certainly see why sometimes, sometimes a movie just like you can see, you can just see why people, like it even if it doesn't hook you Mm -hmm. and it's not a matter of it being good or not it's just a matter of like i I get it it's just not if i would have like how how different would it have been have been am i am i british now how different would it have been if i had seen this movie at age 14 you know how different would i feel about it if this was like a cable mainstay that i happened to catch um i might not have been able to see it because it was r-rated I would assume that that was the case. Our ratings were real touch and go um, when I was uh, when I was growing up in the eighties. Um, and you're but you're a little bit younger than me, so you would have been a little bit. like probably ten or so when this came out. Yeah. So I wouldn't have been allowed to see it then either. But I was I said fourteen before, but I was fifteen, so that was old enough, right? <laughs> I guess I, I certainly. Saw it. Like, I certainly remember the VHS box with Linda Fiorentino, like, isn't she, like, laying in a bed and she's holding the gun and, like, Anthony Edwards is, like, over by the window. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's Paris out the window, you see. Um, I, I mean, that I feel like that box was ubiquitous. Like, every single video store across the country all had a copy of Gotcha. Yeah. How I avoided it for so long, even having played the game, how I avoided it for so long, I have no idea. Uh, it's odd. It's and it's especially odd. I knew about tag, but had forgotten about tag. It's really weird that there are two of these. Yeah, and very close together. I've never seen tag. I know about it for years. I, it's one of those like, man, I should probably watch that just to for completion's sake. <laughs> and plus, you know, young Linda Hamilton, I can watch that. That's good. But I, everything you're saying, I don't disagree with, John. It's slick. But I, it's a slick movie. But I, I like. Re- I was afraid rewatching. I'd hate it, and I've, I've, because a lot of times you're like, oh, nostalgia, and the, 
you know, makes you think things are better than they really were. But I was like, I could see everything wrong with this movie and still really enjoy it with rewatching. And maybe like nostalgia is rose colored glasses, which sometimes makes you not able to see that red flags are red as it were, because they're rose colored glasses. But yeah, there's some problematic stuff, but nothing that's like really incredibly grossly problematic stuff here. It's like college students running around trying to get laid. Well, that's college. No matter what age you're living in. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was like, like the ending shot is him not just shooting a girl's ass with a paintball, but with a fucking tranquilizer dart because she turned him down for a date earlier in the film. And I was like, dude, <laughs> what are you doing? I had to listen to both of the two commentaries on here just going, somebody call this shit out. And both of them are like, oh, it's different times. Harmless boys will be boys. I'm like, come on, dudes. Just say, yeah, the, that's not good. <laughs> it was definitely a case of, like, with a Chekhov's gun. It was like Chekhov's tranquilizer, dart, and tiger. Yeah. I thought the tiger was actually going to come back into it because I was like, there's no way they're showing all this tiger stuff without this coming back in. It ended up being, I was somewhat close. It was, oh, you know, they're showing all this to show that he knows how tranquilizers work. Right. Um, yeah, I. it was, you know, you, my favorite part of the whole thing was when... Um, he was going back and forth across the border at um, Berlin, like crossing crossing the border. And there's the woman at the window who gives him a hard time about the change and all that stuff. Uh, all that played really well for me. It gets really, it gets really long in the tooth. I think the back half of it is like, it kind of ends up in this weird void where there's, he comes back to the states. And then he tells his parents everything that happened that we already saw in the movie. There's like a scene literally where he just explains everything we just watched to his parents. Mm -hmm. And I was going, why is this in here? Like, why wasn't this cut out of the film? Why are we hearing a synopsis of everything we just watched? And I think all of that stuff when he comes back to the States, a lot of that could be trimmed because it's not really funny. It recaps a lot of what already happened. Um, could have been shorter. Nobody's going to go back and cut this thing, so what am I no. even talking about? It could have been shorter, but... <laughs> well, it played for me, and there's two commentaries... I'm going to do a fan edit. <laughs> no, no one's doing a fan edit. There's two commentaries. One's, uh, they're both new. One is with the director talking about how Revenge of the Nerds made it possible for him to shoot this, which obviously for a lot of people was just like, yay, vacation in Europe. Uh, there's a second one where an entertainment journalist and author, Brian Reisman, shares information about the production of it and the history of it and yada yada. Let's move on to another 80s movie. This one from director John Battam, legendary director of Dracula, Blue Thunder, War Games, Short Circuit, Stakeout, Saturday Night Fever, directing Michael J. Fox and James Wood in a mismatched buddy cop comedy called The Hard Way. Now look. I, I actually talked to Brian Salisbury from Junk Food Cinema. I was like, Brian, I got this movie the hard way. I know you love this movie. There's no way you don't love this movie. Like, this has got Brian Salisbury movie written all over it. If you want to borrow my copy to do a Junk Food Cinema with, you can. He's like, yeah, I, I do love that movie, Chris, but I don't think we can talk about it because it's wildly offensive. I was like, is it? And so I watch it and I go, Maybe you're remembering this wrong, dude, because, I mean, yeah, James Woods is about the very definition of, like, one of the biggest asshole actors who's ever lived in real life, certainly more now than he ever was at this period when he was getting work. He's, like, hardcore right-wing, loud Trump supporter type. But I didn't really think this was offensive. It's very 1980s or not in this case, 1991, which still feels exactly like the eighties mismatched buddy cop action comedy film covered with neon, uh, silly jokes, but never found it offensive. It follows a serial killer named the party crasher who played by Stephen Lang, a young mm -hmm. Stephen Lang, who is showing up and just murdering people when he's daring. He's got like a cat and mouse thing that he's encouraging with, with uh, James Wood's character, who's like, you know, the hard-bitten, cynical cop. And he just can't seem to catch him. Meanwhile, in Hollywood, Nick Lang, played by Michael J. Fox, is this huge movie star who is known as an Indiana Jones-type character in a bunch of action films. And But he wants to be taken more seriously and not just play sequels to that character's films. So he had heard about 
this cop that James Woods is in real life, apparently quite a famous and controversial, was like, I'm going to go there to New York City and shadow him and be his friend. And apparently he's like friends with the mayor of New York City and he's friends with the captain of, of the thing. So everybody loves Nick except for James Woods, who doesn't like Hollywood. He doesn't like happiness or joy. He doesn't like anything. Now, of course, something's got to bring them together. And that's where this thing falls weakest is Annabella Ciora, who's a girl who just incomprehensibly is interested in James Woods' character here and is uh, first starting to attempt to date him. And he really likes her a lot, cynical about it working out. But it's, of course, that, oh, don't worry, Nick is good at relationships. He'll help you make things work. And, you know, that's the weakest stuff. But on the whole, I love the the whole 80s, 90s mismatch buddy action cop comedy thing, like, a lot. And I think this is a pretty solid movie. John, I bet, disagrees. Let me ask you a couple things. (laughs) Um, do Do you think that the movies that, the fake movies in the movie Hardway look like Michael J. Fox vehicles. Yeah, kind of. Really? I mean, not like ones he was... Okay, I should say, they don't look like movies he was in, but they do look like movies that we would see coming out at that time. They look like... um, God, what is those... uh, Ones that were Raiders of the Lost Ark ripoffs, but go back... There's like the Alan Quartermain Yeah, the Alan Quartermain uh, shit. Richard Chamberlain. Yeah, exactly. The other thing is, do you think that James Woods... uh, did a ride along with police so that he as an actor could learn how to act in this movie where he plays a cop. Hadn't he already played a cop like eight or nine times? He's in a movie called cop. (laughs) (laughs) He's in a movie just called cop. Like that's the name of it. I don't think it's like, it's like going to the grocery store and the box just says tomato soup or or food. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, he wouldn't have needed to do a ride along at this point of his career. He's played it so many times. I thought that this was, uh, it is a very big budget, early 90s buddy cop action comedy and hits all of those, uh, hits all those beats, feels like in some ways, if you are a fan of that specific type of movie, might be sort of a little hidden gem that you haven't seen before because I don't think it made a lot of money even when it came out. It wasn't but a monster hit or anything. No. My my thing with it is how inauthentic it feels from top to bottom. And I get that it's a product, but it's a product based intrinsically on the belief of certain things within the film itself. So there's things in the film that have to be authentic for the film to work for me. One, I don't buy that the Michael J. Fox movie star character in the movie makes noirs and Indiana Jones knockoffs because he looks like Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. He does not. Michael J. Fox wasn't being cast in those movies, and he's a real actor. Right. So it would then stand to reason that an actor who looked like Michael J. Fox, even in a movie universe, would be cast as teenagers or romantic leads, which is what Michael J. Fox was playing at the time. He was not playing noir detectives nor swashbuckling heroes. That's a hard uh, pill to swallow when watching The Hard Way. (laughs) The other half of the movie, which is the cop stuff, is movie cops. So you you have constructed a world in which someone wants to learn what it's like to be a real cop, and then your sec your other half of the movie is all fake bullshit cop. And my deal was like there's a version of this movie somewhere in some earlier draft or in some alternate dimension where the cop stuff is treated like a real cop job. The it's not. It's like this is the guy that goes in and argues with it's it's like a parody of a cop movie, but, right? But like he like, goes in and argues with the chief, and he yells at reporters and tells them to tie your dick in a knot and all that kind of that's stuff. That's the like, joke, though. That's the joke in the movie is that it's meta in that way. I don't think the movie ever pretends that's what cops are really like. I think it's like the whole time going because the whole movie is like an insider Hollywood movie in many ways. It's winking at the screen the whole time. I think it's very much supposed to be like you know, this ridiculous Hollywood actor with this ridiculous Hollywood cop and like making fun of both of those 
cliched things. I, I thought that was the whole point. I don't know that I'm as convinced. <laughs> I think you're giving it a lot of credit uh, because I think that the cop stuff was written from a place. To me, it struck me as someone whose only experience with police stuff has been by consuming movies. Mm -hmm. And so the output of that is something that looks and sounds and feels like a hundred other movies. But I, I get what you're saying. I just don't know that I, I just don't know that I see it. So I just, it was, it was getting, getting to the nitty gritty of whether or not I liked it. It was fine. Um, I just found it a little, a little hard to buy. And I, I, there was a, there was, I don't know if it's the casting or what could have maybe quote unquote fixed this, but I had a really hard time buying either James Woods and his world or Michael J. Fox and his world and them, them kind of coexisting at the same time. I, I mean, I couldn't, I could enjoy all of the big early nineties, like, Bruckheimer style like car flippings and explosions and gunfights and all that kind of stuff like totally that stuff was you know as polished as anything um but the two leads like I just I just don't know and I don't really it's an also a really odd pairing you might say they're mismatched <laughs> I think the thing with James Woods too is for the longest time he played intensely unlikable characters and you laughed it off because you thought there's no way that he's like that in real life. And, then, and it's difficult now to even go back and watch his performances when you realize that it's just him. Yeah, he like, was just playing himself. Yeah, it's 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 trickier. It's 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 harder to reconcile that when you're like, oh, that's just him turned up to eleven. Like he is a brittle asshole. It's not a uh, it's not something that you can go like, haha, he's so fun to watch. It's like no, he. He seems to treat people in everyday life like that, which is not so fun to watch. Um, I would give this, I so I I kind of give this like a, um, I, I, I have to say I would recommend it, especially if you have a blind, if you like the Beverly Hills Cop movies, you like Last Boy Scout, you like Lethal Weapon, and this is a blind spot, this will probably scratch a very, very specific itch for you. Um, if you've never seen this before, it, it was way bigger in action than I expected. Yeah. I, I knew it existed, but I thought it was more of an odd couple comedy and less of a pure eighties, like buddy cop action film. And that, that's where I think it ultimately worked for me is that it did get that balance, right? I think some of the weakest examples of this genre are the ones that get the balance wrong. They tip too far one way or the other. And I actually, like I said, overall, I found the the mixture of like the comedy to the well filmed and shot action is pretty good here. Like big set pieces ends on a huge set piece that you can see coming from the first five minutes of the film. You like, there's no way they're not going to do that at the end of the movie. And sure enough, but <laughs> you don't build that, and then that's all you do with it. So uh, oh, we should also mention like. Delroy Lindo's in this. Yeah. Christina Ricci's in this. LL uh, Cool J, Louise Guzman. Cool I think they only had the rights to "Mama Say Knock You Out," so they just play it over and over <laughs> and over throughout the movie. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's a, a very unusual cast, and even the creative credits. Like one of the producers was like DJ Caruso, and then like first AD was like Rob Cohen. There's it's a very strange mix of creatives uh, on this film as well. It is. And it, uh, no question was not a huge financial success. I think it came in third the week it was out. I mean, it, it made like $65 million, which is not bad for the period of bad. time. No, that's not so bad it wasn't all. a failure, but it wasn't the monster hit they were hoping for either. Yeah, no, that, that actually was higher than I thought. Yeah. Uh, there are a few extra features here. There's a trailer. There's a commentary. It's brand new from John Batham, which I kind of surprised they were able to get him to come in to do one but him's not never struck me as the type of guy who's like would care <laughs> you know but he really gets into it the whole time and then there's trailers for all the rest of the recent releases here in from this company including the next film we're going to talk about which is another michael j fox film from this same period of time which is 1987's the secret of my success but this is following not real far after the actual secret of Michael J. Fox's success, which was, you know, in the end, Back to the Future, which was obviously a hit that very few other films could compare with in that decade as being as huge as it fucking was. So he 
tried a bunch of different stuff. And this was kind of like, hey, screwball comedies are kind of out of vogue, but I bet you we could bring them back. Like a, a fun little screwball comedy. Michael J. Fox seems fun. A romantic screwball comedy. Sure. We'll get like a Herbert Ross who's worked a lot in theater. He can do a big flamboyant type thing. And this movie was not a hit among anyone really that like critics didn't really care for it. Uh, audiences didn't go see it. I saw it like three times. <laughs> here's another yeah. one. Here's another one, John, that you're going to be like, Jesus fucking Christ, Cox. We usually agree on everything. What is it about the eighties? Like, well, we have had one that I saw. I saw this when I was a kid. Like, I, we, my good friend Matthew Ivory, uh, rented it and uh, we watched it over at his house. So this is one I had actually, I'd actually seen before. Now it had been, it's at least been 1990. Mm-hmm. I may have seen it before then, even, but it's been a long, long time. Well, Secret of My Success follows Michael J. Fox, who's like, he's a went to Kansas State University, and he's like, Mom, Dad, Farmer, Mom, and Dad, I'm moving to New York City, the big city. I'm gonna get in there. And I'm gonna make all the money at a huge business job, and I'm going to so I can pay you back for all the investment you put in me and how you believed in me. And he gets out there. It's like I'm like. And of course, nobody's hiring, right? No, they're like, we're not interested. You need some experience. It's like, well, I can't get experience unless you hire me, and no one will hire me because I don't have experience. Yada yada. So he's like, fuck, I'm gonna have to fall on a distant relative. His distant uncle Howard, played by Richard Jordan, is the CEO of the Pembroke Corporation, which was founded by his father-in-law, and he's married to Vera, played by Margaret, the the, the really funny Margaret Witten, and. So, Michael J. Fox Brantley, most 80s name ever, is like, okay, I guess the guy will only give him a job is like in the mailroom. You have to work your way up. Like, I didn't. (laughs) And he decides, well, fuck it. I'm just going to pretend I'm a a suit at this company. So, he like has like, it takes over an empty office and and creates a fake identity for himself. And he falls for one of the actual big suits in the company, Christy, played by the wonderful Helen Slater. Man, Helen Slater had her moment of like, wow, she was in a bunch of stuff and she was great. Like, Ruthless People, always going to be one of my favorite comedies of all time, starring her. But this is, she's like, uh, uh, she takes business seriously. She wants nothing to do with them at first, but before you know it, they actually, the charm is there. But Bradley finds a weird situation where he's told, hey, as a mailroom employee, hey, you need to go out they need a driver the the boss's wife who he's not met yet his aunt he meets her she doesn't know who he is it's important that she not find out but she's like oh after he compliments her repeatedly because she's mad at her husband like i'm too old no one cares about me anymore she's like i'm all fuck this boy and she does in a way that definitely wouldn't happen today but happened a lot back then and he finds himself caught between the girl he really wants to be with and the girl who he's related to and shouldn't be sleeping with but can't seem to stop, and between the job he actually wants to have and the job he has to show up for in this screwball, running around, romantic comedy that definitely didn't work for a lot of people, but I, I've i always found this fucking thing charming. I don't know what to tell you. Good. I, good for, good uh, for you. Now the retort. Good for you. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I... Uh, John's like, I hate it, and I think less of you for liking it. I was shocked <laughs> that I... Uh, you know, this is a movie that does not... Uh, has not gra- is gracefully aged with historical perspective. Uh-huh. This is a very Reagan-era movie True. about, like, clawing your way to the top with the... with no other driver other than wealth. Like... Do whatever you can to be wealthy, to accumulate wealth, and it toes a, a hard line um, between being a farce and being aspirational. And I think that the trouble of the, with the movie for me is that I don't think farces can be aspirational. I think they kind of have to pick a lane, hmm. and. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of sort of like plucky, I like you, I think you really are supposed to like root for him. And 
it's very difficult to do so in uh, in 2020 AD, the year of our Lord. It's uh, it's very it's don't a bring very, God very into this, movie. John. It's you know, <laughs> it feels like an extrapolation. I get why he would do this because it feels like a direct extrapolation of his Michael, uh, his Alex P. Keaton character from Family Ties. Yeah, totally. Like, what would happen if, you know, other than changing the parents to being farmers, it feels very much like, okay, Alex P. Keaton leaves the house, now what happens? And the movie kind of has that flavor to it. Um, Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties, for younger listeners, <laughs> the gimmick of the Family Ties sitcom was that they were the parents were laid-back, chill, open-minded, liberal hippies, and they were raising kids in the era of conservative Reaganism, and the kids were, like, gravitating towards those values, and the parents were doing everything they could to fight it, <laughs> as opposed to most sitcoms where the parents are conservative and the kids are rebel in their own way. Right. That was that was the gimmick to Family Ties. Anyways, but this feels very Alex B. Keaton, so I get why he did it, um, and I, I get why this project even came to him in the first place. Uh, I thought this... This stinks. I'm sorry. I thought this stinks. Um, I I really didn't enjoy it at all, and and kind of um, was sort of bemused by my younger self because I actually remembered a lot of the movie. There was, you know, sometimes you think you. It's funny. There's movies that I've seen two three years ago, and I couldn't name you a detail in it, and I could sit and watch it, and it would be like it was all new. Mm-hmm. And then there's other movies that I saw like once, like. 35 years ago and and for some reason like i know what the beats are yeah like i knew that uh like i knew that he was gonna have sex with his uh with the lady and uh you know I, like everything that happened i i was like familiar enough with to go oh okay yeah yeah i remember this i remember this i remember it this. all came flooding back because you knew that it was back. a good movie when you were young and now you're just too old and cynical you know, maybe I am too old and cynical. I, I f- did not enjoy it. Did not enjoy it. i tell you what I did like. I did like the special features where Helen Slater also didn't enjoy it. Yeah. And hadn't seen it in a while. That's true. And I guess she had watched it right before the interview and she was like, you know, <laughs> I used to do all these movies and when you look back at them, some of them don't age so well. Yeah. And this one in particular, and I, I appreciated that actually. I think... Anytime you have a special feature where somebody is really like, like super honest about the work, I think is always, always, always refreshing. And it was good to hear from her, not just because she agreed with me. So, hey, there's somebody on my side, but because I thought, I thought her, an honest perspective was interesting too. Hey, I am in the minority here. I'm the first to admit it decidedly in the minority of liking this movie, but I've just always found it charming. And once again, just like we were talking about before, it's, everything you said, you're not wrong about I'm it. Shocked. Any of I'm shocked. I'm honestly shocked you like it because it is so Reagan-y and it, that does not strike me as something you would it's so Reagan sort of get it, into. It's so Reagan era. But yeah. he's all the characters who are like, no matter what you do, as long as you make money, it's okay, are the villains here. You know, like he's it It still goes, hey, it is about being successful, getting the girl and making a lot of money. But he doesn't do it in a way that's the bad guy, the Reagan way. You know what I mean? He's like, oh, man, he did, in fact, put in the work, even if it was, you know, short term work by comparison. But. You know, I didn't find it. It's def- decidedly Reagan era film, but I didn't find it offensively conservative. I hated the music in this too. Oh come on, man! It has "I Walking on Sunshine" by Katrina and no, the Waves. That's like one of the I, greatest songs ever. No, I hated the music in this. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> oh, that's that's a perfectly fine song. Or how about oh, there's some other songs yeah. in it? Yeah, they play that one. Dun, dun. Uh, there's some other songs in it too. There's like a song that plays when he first moves to New York and is climbing the ladder. Mm-hmm. And I think the lyrics are literally like, you just moved to New York and you're climbing the ladder. And I was like, why, why, yeah, why that's pick a, the, the song? Secret of My Success performed by Night Ranger, who no Ugh. matter what anyone says, we're not a good band. Uh-oh. Not a good band. Yeah, it's got, you know, he's got like bands like Restless Heart and Bananarama, Pat Benatar, Roger Daltrey. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to defend the musical choices. That's about as subjective as you get. And a lot of it is indeed pretty 80s and pretty bad. But 
you know, you get pretty 80s and pretty bad and even the really good 80s movies with pop whenever there's a pop music song in it because we didn't know what good music was in the 80s. Took- I think it was more the score. I mean, there were, there were some song choices I didn't love, but it was also sort of just the... Uh, the kind of like easy listening like saxophone score that was just like no thank you yeah, fair enough well i i did not expect you to like that movie john I this is really my anti pick of the week yeah i did definitely didn't expect you to like it i knew this would be the scenario i thought much like the the previous two films maybe the like i would like look back and go oh god i'm so embarrassed i used to like this film but i found i still enjoyed all three of these so i don't know but let's talk about a film that has actually aged better than it was when it came out in some ways maybe even it was a little prescient i'm talking about kevin smith's mall rats which just got a huge blu-ray release from arrow there was a upon a time, as Kevin Smith will tell you repeatedly, no matter which interview he's ever doing about his career and excessively in the bonus features here, that this is the movie that almost ended his career. After Clerks, which was a no-budget, huge surprise success, like no one, especially Kevin Smith, could have predicted in a billion years that Clerks would be a fucking game-changer for the movie industry. I mean, it was the Blair Witch Project of comedies basically you know it just came out and everybody wanted to make a clerks yeah he follows it up with mall rats which is really on many levels more of the same but now with a budget has few stars in it although it's weird looking at all the big names in this film that shannon doherty was the headline star of this movie she was the one that everybody knew and not like ben affleck or jason lee or anybody and this was an abject failure. Critics hated it so much they wrote him hate mail about it. Uh, audiences, just nobody went to go see it. He publicly am- apologized for the existence of this film. All these years later, like people s- discovered it and went, this is actually pretty good. It's pretty funny. And I think part of that is like, like I liked this movie when it came out. I'm not a fan of anything Kevin Smith has done since Chasing Amy, really. But I liked this movie when it came out. And I think that's because I was kind of in a world like Kevin Smith, where I hung out with a bunch of skateboarders and losers who hung out at malls and smoked pot and talked about almost nothing but movies and comic books. This was our world. But it wasn't the rest of the world's world yet. And that's because we didn't have the web yet. And his, he's like, I think it's because we had the web. And then after 10 years of the web, people were like, oh, that's like pretty much what the web is, is this world of of mall rats like when this came out nobody knew who stan lee was that blows my mind your average person did not know who stan lee was who like jason lee's double take in the film yeah like, he's talking and he's like are you stan lee and it's like now everybody knows who stan lee is. yeah exactly it's like you just know what my mom knows who stan lee is i'm just by seeing his picture without yeah. even his name attached he's that iconic this was a time when people did not so i think this movie despite of course having some you know, I mean, it's a, it's a tits and ass movie, you know, in the 90s. So it's got some problematic stuff in it, but nothing. I didn't think anything super deeply problematic. And it all has that sort of self-penalizing Kevin Smith mark to it for when it does get that way. But it's two guys who are uh, Jason Lee and Jeremy London, who was the brother of the guy who was the lead character in Dazed and Confused. And they're like, oh, well, look at his brother who looks exactly like him. And and that's a smart move, right? I guess. So the two of them both have girlfriends. One's dating Jason Lee's Jason, uh, dating Shannon Doherty. Jeremy London's dating Claire Forlani. And they both get dumped on the same day. And like, well, what is there to do but to go to the mall? And the whole movie basically takes place at the mall and then an, another cheaper mall, but then back to the main mall where they deal with a lot of people they know, some they're friends with, some they're enemies with, both of them trying to get their girlfriends back and culminates in a live dating game type show in the mall that's being thrown by the father of Claire Forlani, who really hates Jeremy London and played really funny funnel it funnily that's not a word i think it's not the first time i've tried to use that either michael by michael rooker and this has got this great cast of people a lot of which who were not really recognizable at the time like all the leads for one thing but ben affleck plays kind of the the bad the secondary bad guy here joey lauren adams is in this uh, of course 
Jay and Silent Bob are in this. Ethan Suppley, Stan Lee with a, wonder, a wonderful little cameo, Scott Mosier. I really genuinely enjoyed rewatching this, but it's probably my third or fourth time watching it. And I got to admit, my entertainment is always a little lessened each time I see it. Like, yeah, it's what I remember it being. It's funny. It's cute. It's definitely more prescient than anyone realized at the time, but... I would be okay with not watching it again. <laughs> yeah, I had revisited it um, right before uh, Arrow's release. Actually, I didn't. I it was, Arrow's release wasn't on my radar, so I had watched it just a matter of like, I think right in the middle or towards the end of summer, had watched it. Um, and then when I when I revisited Arrow's, I watched the extended, which I'd actually seen before. Uh, I guess there was like a there was a 10th anniversary edition, like back when the film was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> then, and that had the, the longer cut, which is not a better cut. It's just kind of, there's just more of it. There's especially more at the beginning, um, kind of setting, setting up the relationship between the guys and their girls and the parents and that sort of thing before they get to the mall. They don't get to the mall fast enough in the, in the extended cut. Um, you know, I, th there's certain movies you just cannot separate yourself from in a way. Yeah, like Secret and, of My Success. Yeah, <laughs> or, or Gotcha, you know, that it's once it's ingrained in you. Um, oh, there's certain movies you just, you can't separate yourself from. And it's not even a matter of like nostalgia. It's like when you watch the movie, you don't just see the movie, you see a window into who you were at the time that the movie came out, yeah. which is different than nostalgia. It's different for me to go, Oh, I watched never ending story all the time when I was a kid. So I'm going to watch never ending story. Cause it reminds me of being a kid. This is really specific in like a weird way of like it always, the, that early Kevin Smith stuff, something about it got in my DNA or something. And when I watch it, it's like going through some kind of weird picture box of when I was like, not quite 20 yeah. or just turned 20. Um, and you know, a lot of the stuff, it's why, it's why you understand things like representation matters. Even if you're like a cis white dude mm -hmm. is because anything that, that treated comic books seriously was something that I gravitated towards, if not just like completely celebrated. So a lot of that Kevin, early Kevin Smith stuff really felt like I was like in in some kind of secret club. And he's really done a good job as far as branding that club to make people feel like they're all kind of friends that have all sort of been along for this ride throughout his career. And he's your buddy, Kevin Smith. And it's right. it's all sort of packaged and branded that way. But it's real weird. And I can't... Um, it's hard for me to separate. I think Mall Rats in particular is probably. I, I've also seen Clerks recently. Um, I think Mall Rats is kind of shoddy. It's as a movie, it's it's shaggy. Um, the 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 Clerks dialogue, something about it works better than applying that same thing. It's like it's like the same type of rhythms and everything sort of shoehorned into like all new characters in a new situation, mm -hmm. and I. It it doesn't uh, it doesn't click into place like it does on Clerks like Mall Rats. It always feels like people are opening their mouth and saying like a big mealy mouthful of words. Yeah, like they like they're having trouble with the dialogue, um, and it adds to like an overall kind of shabby, shoddy feel. The mall feels sort of like the mall. Even though the movie is like oh the mall is like a glorious, wonderful place, it's shot like a mall that's closing. Yeah, like I think it, it actually was a mall that was closing. So <laughs> it doesn't look like a glorious, wonderful place. It yeah. looks like a crappy mall that's like closing down. Um, but you know, it's 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 part of my young f fandom, both my movie fandom and like my geekdom, in such a way that it's that I can't I can't be objective about it. Like I I can't just go like oh that movie sucks or oh it's really really and it's or neither would I go oh it's really really good. Mm -hmm. I don't know what somebody who's how when did it come out ninety five yeah so I was I I was either nineteen or twenty I was twenty five I'd been living in Austin for three years when it came out so uh, you said this was like your twenties strangely it was like my nineteen or twenty two yeah uh, uh, twenty also but I was twenty five when I saw it I was like wow this is like me just a few years ago <laughs> yeah 
it's you know and i i don't know what that i don't know how it plays for somebody now i don't know mm -hmm. how it plays for somebody now that there's no malls and people know who stanley is like i'd be real interested to find out what a, a 19 or 20 year old thinks of mall rats watching it for the first time today that would be the perspective that i would want to hear yeah because i'm i'm sorry <laughs> i feel kind of bad i don't know i mean we've we've talked about it and i don't i feel like i hope that what we've said is interesting but i don't know that i can add anything to the conversation about this movie in an odd way that I can about other movies. No, that's fair. I mean, and this package is about as completest as you could want for a look at mall rats. This is, I can't imagine outside of like a, you know, if someone ends up wanting to put out a 4k copy of this, which I find unlikely, but there being an upgrade that you'd need more than this one if you're a fan of this movie, I mean, there's like an, a big, a 12 and a half minute introduction to Kevin Smith, which is totally his, when he's at his best, when he's doing his self-depreciating humor for the theatrical cut or the extended cut. Uh, there is the TV cut here, which is the version where there's basically that famously they did really awful and intentionally awful dubbing to cover up profanities in the film of which there's quite a bit. So if you want to watch that version that that's there and there's some slightly different scenes in it as well. There's a cast and crew comedy commentary with Kevin Smith, producer, Scott Mosier, uh, archivist, Vincent Pereira, actors, Jason Lee, Ben Affleck, and Jason Muse. There is my mall rats memories for 30 minutes, which Kevin Smith talking about his memories of making the film it is my mall rats, a trim tribute to Jim Jacks, who was the producer who made it happen with, but Kevin Smith talking about his fond memories of him. There's blunt talk, for 10 minutes with Jason Muse and his big, crazy-looking fake dentures. There's Hollywood of the North, which is a, a weirdly barely animated documentary with basically interviews with the Minnesota crew members who worked on the film and their memories. I don't know why they animated it. Uh, when We Were Punks, a new director, the director of photography. There's... It says an hour and three... Two, hour and two minutes, 48 seconds of deleted scenes. I don't know what that's about. I started watching it. Most of them were not in great shape. Uh, neither were the outtakes and behind the scene footage for eight minutes and 12 seconds window box with time codes. There's original cast interviews from the set. There's erection of an epic, the making of mall rats for 22 minutes. There's a Q and a with Kevin Smith, nine minutes that was done at the 10th anniversary. There's the music video, which is actually pretty cute for build me up buttercup, which went with the movie. There's the soundtrack EPK, uh, which is just Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier, an archival piece talking about the songs that are in this. There's the a full two hours of straight-up dailies that were shot in here. I mean, like I said, this is everything that exists. Stills galleries showing the close-ups of comic books from here, behind-the-scenes stills, a collector's booklet with a fold-out poster, replica blueprints for the Operation Drive-By and Operation Dark Knight from the movie with a reversible sleeve featuring the original art and the newly commissioned artwork by artist Robert Samelin. This is, I mean, if you like this movie, this is a great fucking set. It is as yeah. complete as you could possibly get. And even I didn't know there's like a 12 minute intro to this film that involves a gunfight that was totally shot and, and just, they didn't put the polish on it, but it's here. You can watch that. Like what the, yeah. you see totally why they cut it. <laughs> I wonder too, if like, you know, when we watch a movie that's like a roller boogie or something like that, where it's like, we're just like, that is so seventies. I need to know from someone younger, if mall rats is one of those Yeah. where like, we look at that, those disco era, thank God it's, thank God it's Friday. And those other kind of movies that came out in the disco era though, that have, you just look at them and go, that is pure seventies up on the screen. I need to know if mall rats is that <laughs> I need to know from somebody younger, if mall rats is like, Oh my God, that is so 1995. Like, from the music to the way they're dressed to the slang to the comic stuff, like I want, I want to know if it's if it's if it's become that for uh, for younger people. Is it like how you felt watching American Graffiti? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like oh, that's how it was when my mom was a kid. Yeah, I guess you know I never watched American Graffiti with my parents. I feel like that I missed a good opportunity to like ask them how realistic was this. You know, dazed and confused with like my older brothers and sisters. I could just ask them, you know, hey, was that real? Like, oh, yeah. And it's like, I remember watching that and going, wait, this is like 70 something? Because this is exactly 
what the last day of school was like in like 87. Yeah. <laughs> Indistinguishable. But, you know, I lived in Virginia and there were a bunch of deadheads there. So really, there you go. You know what? We're at an hour, so we have to wrap up this episode. But we'll be back very shortly with part two of my digital noise conversation with John Golson, where we have a bunch more movies. This was obviously the 80s, 90s edition. And next we'll be getting into some horror movies and some a little bit of superhero and big action movies. A lot more stuff. I don't know. You should tune in. I think you might like it. It's pretty good.